0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something.
0: Hello listeners, and welcome to part two of our Love for Leo double feature. Yeah, I'm coining that. That's going to be trademarked Feeling Film, Love for Leo. Anytime we want to come back to our Leonardo DiCaprio features whatever. But anyway, I'm Patch, and with me or is he with? Me, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. LDC? <laughs> now we a gang. Is that what it is? I thought we
1: were we were doing LDC and now
0: we're, we're love down, for Leo. down with down with LDC, whatever. Down with, you
1: down with LDC? Down
0: yeah. with LDC. <laughs> okay, anyway. You know? Sorry. <laughs> All right, but even if he wasn't with me, I'd still find a way to have a great conversation because joining us All the way from the future, a.k.a. Australia, by way of the Midnight Double Feature podcast, is Zoheb Ali. Welcome to the show, Zoheb.
2: Thank you. Hey, fellas. How are we? Thank you so much for having me.
1: So good to have you on, my friend. It is. It's very, very good to have you on. And we actually met through LCG, is that right?
2: Uh LSG. Uh, LSG. The... Wow,
1: I'm trying yeah. to, I'm mixing it up with my drugs.
2: <laughs> you know, that's not totally no.
1: inappropriate considering their content, but
2: <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, Liberty uh, no, Street Geek. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean like that's how I met my co host actually, um, Colin. Like we he just messaged me out of the blue one day. He's like, Hey, I like what you're posting in L S G Media's Facebook page. Uh do you want to start a podcast? And here we are, two and a half years later. So <laughs> That's
1: awesome, man. Yeah, some of my greatest memories are the fact that you being in Australia would end up with early screenings of films. And so you would be seeing things in theaters around the same time. I would be seeing them for press and you would always beat me. And I would, I was (laughs) frustrating because you were seeing these things for like real and you were able to post about them in these like long, deep reviews. And here I was like stuck with my embargo back here in the States. And I was like, this is just like now, just like you've seen Tenant, and we haven't, so it just it continues. Don't
2: worry, I won't be spoiling Tenant for anybody. <laughs> we appreciate Good. that.
0: Yeah, we uh, Aaron right now is on lockdown with his theater. His his state is one of six that doesn't have their theater theaters open. My theaters in Arkansas are starting to open, and Tenant is scheduled to release on Monday, so three days from now when we're recording this. But I've chosen because I care about my best friend to wait until he's able to, even if it's on VOD. I hope it's not, but uh, we're going to at least watch it once, quote, together, like in the same time frame, even if uh, even if it's a couple of weeks away. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But we're both excited to see Tenet. We know it's, I think, our most anticipated movie of the year before COVID hit. And with everything dropping off, it seems to be the only thing that we have to look forward to.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Well, before we get into the spoilery section of the show, we always start off by summing up how we would describe the movie in one word. And as we like to do, we always start with our guests because we care about our guests slightly more than we care about ourselves. So feel privileged. we have, and why don't you give us your one word takeaway for Shutter Island? If I didn't mention already, we're covering Shutter Island. I know. I just, <laughs> I told I you, being, <laughs> they I know they, so they, gra- they see in the
1: title. It's fine.
0: Yes. I don't have to say it. So be smart people use discernment. Use your big brain. Shutter Island, that's what we're covering. Okay, here we are. One more takeaways. Go ahead, Zohab. Sure. Uh,
2: so, um, you, you know what? When you guys asked me to, you know, when you ask, hey, what do you want to cover? I went through your insane list of movies that you've already covered. <laughs> so I'm just like, what <laughs> What do I have left? Uh, but then I realized, holy crap, you guys have not covered this underrated and underseen gem in Martin Scorsese's resume. Um, so I'm going, my one word takeaway for this movie is struggle, um, in terms of, you know, without any spoilers at all, it's the struggle to save a patient's mind and a patient's sanity. Um, uh, you know, you've got the two, you know, you've got the doctor's kind of like, uh, perspective. So you've got Ben Kingsley's character and, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character. And then you've got Max Van Sydow's character on each side of the kind of room, uh, with, with their own different methods, uh, struggling to both save and help this patient in their own way. But also you've got Teddy or rather, yeah, yeah, Teddy, let's just call him Teddy <laughs> for now. Um, this, this is a hard one to talk about. It is. So it's got, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so you've got Teddy. We're
0: getting there soon. We're getting there soon. It's Absolutely. Okay. So you've got,
2: the, <laughs> you've got the, the struggle of Teddy in his own mind to save himself as well and how best to help himself. So, I I think, for me, uh, to sum up this word, this movie in one word, it's struggle.
0: That's a great word and very, very appropriate. Aaron, what about you?
2: Well,
1: like Zohab, there's not a lot I can say right here because of the context of this movie. So uh, my word was perspective. And that was really just because, for me, more than anything, I think watching it this time, and I would say watching it each and every time that I've seen it since the first time, It is a film that, because of its structure, gets better and better and better. We were joking about Tenet and Christopher Nolan films, who is Patrick and I's kind of collective favorite director. And the idea is similar to ones that in his films where there are so many layers, there are so many things going on. Once you understand the film, you see it from a different perspective. It's kind of like you were talking about Zoheb with the different perspective of the characters, but even as the audience Once you've gone through it once, you watch it entirely different. Patrick and I like to talk about Ex Machina in this way because we watched it the first time and we felt like we were in Caleb's shoes right there with him going through this experience. But once you've done that, you turn the movie back on and you say to yourself, I'm going to watch this and I'm going to think about, you know, Ava. And I'm going to, I'm going to think only about Ava, the whole movie from Ava's perspective. And it, it changes, it feels very different. And it's similar 100%. to, to watching this movie like that, you know, because you go through it and you know what, you know, and people are not quite the same as you may have thought of them the first time you went through this. And there's so many details in this film to unpack and to notice that help to just enrich the world and the story as is- as it goes. So yeah, perspective for me, Patrick.
0: That's great. And this movie, I think serves well as a conversation starter, continuer and finisher. I think this is a, a movie that you'd want to watch and then go out and have coffee and just talk about afterwards. Because you're right, there's so much, so much in here that we'd be here for four hours to talk about it. And I can't lose that much sleep, despite the fact that I would love the conversation. And for me, it really came down to one of the aspects that really... I felt drove this whole thing. And that was torment. It's centered around this mental hospital that is occupied by felons, by violent criminals. And I felt there was so much torment within those walls, either torment to try to get out torment because of the predicament that a patient is in. And even as we go through the story, walking through it from Teddy's point of view, you sense that torment from the very beginning. And I felt like that torment has different motives as we find out as the story goes on. But overall, I don't think it ever changes. Like I felt like I was not being dragged necessarily involuntarily, but I felt like I was being pulled in and sort of being forced to experience these things with him and with those around him. I mean, the moment that he's walking onto the grounds and that old lady with the creepy face. It's kind of the iconic, one of the iconic stills that I actually took a shot of it and said, this is creepy. And (laughs) Aaron's like, you've seen this already, haven't you? Because that's a, that's a big deal. And we'll get into more of that in the spoiler area. But, but yeah, torment, I think was just this feeling that I felt all the way through it. And by the time we get to the end, well, we'll talk about that too. So let's go ahead and just get all this out of the way. This is the spoiler. horrific portion of our podcast this is where we get deep this is where we get crazy with conversation and this is where we find out that teddy's crazy okay i just said it you know so there it is <laughs> just
1: rip the band-aid off right there i just rip the band-aid off right there
0: yeah, yeah. so hopefully so that's what i'm doing and if you haven't seen the movie just do yourself a favor and see it regardless of whether or not you come back for the conversation it's a great movie and you're right it is underrated absolutely is
2: why do you guys? Why do you think that it's underrated? I mean, I I have a theory. Um, I'm thinking that it because it came around the same time. Well, a couple months later, we got Inception, right? Which is also another Leo DiCaprio film, obviously a Nolan film uh, that deals with uh, perspective and you know th- how how the mind works and stuff like that. So I I don't know. Uh, it, it's tough to me why this was so underseen. I and you take a crack
1: at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I think that it wasn't a typical Scorsese picture. I think when people initially hear the word Scorsese, they think gangster film. And this is not something that jumps out. I actually didn't know. I don't believe that the book was a huge hit before the film either. It's based on a novel, but it wasn't a situation where it was like Gone Girl, where everybody and their mom had read Gone Girl. When the movie came out. So everybody was like looking for this adaptation. So that was a factor. And then, you know, I I just it's interesting because in cinephile circles, this movie is beloved and pretty much everybody that's seen it is like Shutter Island is phenomenal. It's just it's that that word underseen. It's that subset of people where it just didn't kind of crack the everyday movie audience. And it, it is very interesting because it's got you know an A list cast. It's got Leo pushing it along. Now you know it was early on in Michelle Williams's kind of coming into her own. Ruffalo was not nearly as big. I think it's pre spotlight um, and his big kind of worldwide breakout wasn't be- was before the Hulk, you know. And so yeah, I, you know I think it just is is like a it's like almost like a prestige blockbuster. In, in a lot of ways, like it's a prestige type of picture because of how artistic it is in the way it's made, but it's got that blockbuster budget and it just lives in a very special world. And it actually kind of, I think part of it also is what Patrick's first question is going to be about, about how it's a mix of genres. It's hard to peg this movie. You know, you can, I would peg it as a mystery, but it has so many of these other elements that... I don't know. You know, horror people might be afraid of it. Uh, you know, people who are afraid of they don't want to go to too much drama. It's not really a horror movie either. So if you don't like drama, you're going to be disappointed. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, a whole slew of reasons. I think
0: that's a I co-sign all that. And as the as the the commoner, non snobby, I'm going to say, well, it's it's not the Irishman, which makes it a whole lot better by default. And <laughs> whatever. No, I'm kidding. I never saw The Irishman. It was too long for my taste. Whatever. I'm going to just leave that at the door. But Zahab, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think that it does lead into the the first question that I have was regarding how it is a mishmash of mystery, drama, suspense, and horror. I think in 2010, had I seen this, not being exposed through feel and film in that horror genre that I've been exposed to, which I'm just going to say this honestly. I'm. Gonna, I'll, I'll just kind of give credit where credit is due. Aaron and the podcast have helped me expand my horror love because horror is so much more than just Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That it's so much more than paranormal stuff and supernatural type things. It can be things like The Shining. It can be things like Blair Witch. You know, things that capture that tenseness of it. And this could be considered horror because there are some horrific elements to it. There's some I don't think there are any jump scares necessarily at least I don't remember any. But It does have those elements of drama, suspense, and horror, and even mystery. Well, mystery for sure. And I wondered how effective you guys saw that at hitting all those different genres. Did it do all those genres uh, a service, or did they feel diminished as a result of being all
2: those things at once? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it hit pretty much all of those genres pretty well, especially the mystery genre. I'm in agreement with Aaron here. I think the leading genre here, if we were to define it in a genre-specific term, uh, I think it'll be mystery. Uh, like, you know, you've got the the aesthetic of it is the first thing that strikes me because I remember being 17 years old when this movie comes out, and the trailers hit me, and I was like, wow, this looks like a this looks like a detective film. Like, you know, just the what they're wearing, the huge trench the trench coats, the hat, like. It, it, it strikes you as like a classic well a take on a classic um arthur conan doyle novel like right a sherlock holmes novel like you know that's it, that's what it kind of strikes me as but obviously once once we start bringing in the horror elements and the thrilling elements of it that's when it starts to take a bit of a turn to something a bit darker like you know like this could also easily be a stephen king adaptation <laughs> like you know this if 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 someone told me that this was a Stephen King adaptation, I would 100% believe it. Um, Like, this feels like elements of The Shining. This feels like elements of Shawshank. uh, You know, even the Green Mile, like, all of that is in here. So I think if you do throw in... If you start making a movie and there's a lot of genres in it, or it's a hodgepodge or mishmash of genres, then you run the risk of, like you said, Pat, alienating audiences who came for a specific genre right so if they came here for a horror movie you might be a bit disappointed i remember people being disappointed because they thought get out was a straight up horror movie uh and get out get out is while it does have horrific elements i don't consider it a horror movie i just don't like there are there's other commentary in there that jordan peele manages to put in there so you know it, it is for me it works for me it works as a mystery drama suspense and horror uh because it's just it's it's tough to pull that off Um, And I think Scorsese just does an absolutely fantastic job of putting those genres into a blender and creating something that's so riveting. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I I think it is effective in all of them. And if anything, you might even throw in romance because there is just a, a very strong semblance of just Teddy being in love. With his wife, whether it's dream sequences or not, there's so many flashbacks that kind of speak to this attempt of him to hold on to that love. And it's like a love story. It's like a love story where the two people are being ripped apart for whatever reason. Um, In this case, it's they're trying to hold on and in memories. But you know, the way it plays out in the acting because of the way the scenes are framed, it could be almost like a normal you know romance story where people are truly just physically there. Um And I think that that's what makes it work the best is that the aesthetic, like you talked about, Zoheb. For me, the aesthetic is really that thing I love about this movie more than anything, just the way that the camera and Scorsese's choices make it so seamless. You never truly feel like you're jumping in and out of memories. It is just a a, a smooth transition between the two worlds where it makes it hard for the viewer to understand the reality and I I don't know that we have had movies that do this since that, that that can so effortlessly kind of shift in and out of this dream world to where you are left curious about yourself about whether or not something is really happening and I think that that helps to make all of those genres work because you're not getting it in here's your horror and then big tonal shift break here's your drama it's just it's flowing. The it's the through line of all of those genres is flowing through each other. Yeah, there's definitely
0: a dominance of mystery and then drama and suspense and horror I think add to that. Because like you said, zoheb watching a trailer for this And I remember watching this, I think, I don't know if it, when it came out or maybe a couple of years later, but I remember seeing a trailer for it thinking, yeah, it's a period. Of course, it's Leo in a period piece, which is always what we get. You know, I don't think I've ever seen him in something that's Mm -hmm. not from something that's not from our time. And when you watch this, it definitely lives by that mystery. But those other elements of drama, suspense and horror really cater to that genre. And I think I'll just say this from a filmmaking standpoint. I think that's what you have to do. You have to settle on a, this is the genre I'm going to go with. And then I'm going to play with these other elements and help support that. And I think Scorsese does a really great job at, Aaron, like you said, blending that. We have those seamless transitions of what's real and what's not. Because it helps reinforce that unreliable narrator that he's going for from the very beginning. I mean, we are with Teddy on this journey. We want to solve this mystery of the missing patient or the sick patient. And Scorsese, until he pulls the rug out from under us and says, this is the real sick patient. I mean, we are living vicariously through the motives of Teddy and sometimes through the other characters, but it's Teddy that's driving the story. And I think seeing him in relationship to Dr. Cawley, seeing him in relationship to Chuck, seeing him in relationship to his wife, And to the other people around, it really comes down to this whole thing of a mystery that needs to be solved. And look, I think most people love to solve a mystery. I think that's why people like going to J.J. Abrams movies and watching his television shows, because they're all about the what's behind the curtain. What significance does that have? And that kind of leads into my next question that Scorsese. I don't like a lot of his stuff because I think it's just He's like Tarantino light, but not too much lighter because he's just I mean, he's he tells a story and he uses a lot of imagery. And especially when he's doing a pseudo biopic, you know, it's its really heavy handed in some not heavy handed like, in a bad way. But what I love about Shutter Island is that I felt like he has a lighter touch to this. I mean, there are some real kind of head punch moments, but for the most part, Shutter Island works as a mystery to be solved. And I think it's this technique that he uses called Chekhov's gun, where everything on screen seemingly has a purpose. Now this could backfire and no pun intended there with Chekhov's gun, but this could really backfire if you don't know what you're doing. And I'll just say this little commentary lost had this problem as a series. There was so much mystery about the Island that the writers were trying to balance with character development that by the end of the series, they had to decide on one or the other. That's not really a spoiler necessarily, but a lot of questions about all of that went unanswered. And so as someone who liked one aspect of it, I didn't get all my questions answered. I was like, why did you show us that if you weren't going to pay it off? You know, when you see the cup of water in the Jeep in Jurassic Park get pushed in on and you see it vibrating, there is a meaning to that. And there are things in this film that Scorsese uses to serve that purpose. And I wanted to kind of read them off a list. And I wanted to get both your thoughts on what you think the meaning, if it was defined, maybe I missed it, but just for the sake of conversation, where did you land on understanding these kinds of symbols or artifacts or whatever? And you know, you've got the, what I mentioned earlier, the shh woman at the beginning, I don't know how do you describe her better than that. The the role of water uh, the Lighthouse and even the note that says the rule of four and who is 67, specifically asking the question, was that Teddy that wrote that or was it planted by Kali or someone else? Because all four of those, I think, have a lot of immense meaning. And I wanted to get each of your thoughts on any that stood out or ones that you may have questions on that we can kind of work through.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think Chekhov's gun is one of my favorite uh sort of elements (laughs) that a that a that a director can use whenever they're making a movie because honestly like directors like nolan uh and we were just talking about very recently um he's not necessarily a director but vince gilligan on breaking bad uh really uses the chekhov's gun angle like element really really well like everything you see on screen has a meaning on purpose that comes around later eventually um, but the, like turning to the, I guess we're going to call it the shh woman. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I agree, Patch. I have no idea what else to call her. So <laughs> yeah, initially this was just a, a, a horrifying image, right? The first time I saw it, it was all over the trailers. It was pretty much everywhere. You know, it, she's got this gnarly kind of like cut across her throat that I didn't really notice until like the second or third viewing. I think it's a you know I'm I'm taking it kind of like very sort of practically. I think this is a uh a patient who 100% understands that this is later this is Andrew Lytus um and she is kind of she's been told not to spoil it essentially, not to spoil the role play. So she's gesturing Shh, <laughs> as a sign of hey, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I, I well, I don't know what they've threatened her with. Well, that's one thing, right? I mean, like, I don't know what they're threatened with, or any of these patients with, uh, if they were to, uh, I guess, ruin the role play or ruin the chance of uh, getting uh, Andrew Latus the proper treatment that he that he that they're going for. So, I'm going to take it very practically. I think that the uh, the shushing is um is pretty literal. Should I move on to the roll of wa- the roll of water, or yeah, just are just whatever you go you're, around, just just whatever your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just... Well, here's the thing about the water in this movie. So, every time we get fire, so fire in this movie, so you know, when he's in the cave or when he blows up the car, there it's always followed or it's always preceded by a hallucination. Like it's always a it's always a step away from reality whereas like water brings him back to reality, you know, like when he's uh, he he's, he's suddenly reminded about the actual about the actual event, right? The our, the, the the big event that we're getting to. So I think I think the role of water, you know, like there's just, even just the way the movie kicks off, you know, he's washing his face, looks up, that's a lot of water, that's a lot of water, you know, like he's absolutely freaking out. So I think the role of water plays an instrumental part in Andrew Laters' treatment in that it's what he fears, but it, it's what he must overcome to get better. And I just think that the way water is used in this movie is absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, just something that's just totally. You know, surrounded. We're surrounded by on an everyday basis, but for for uh, Andrew Laters, it's just terrifying. Getting to the lighthouse. I think the lighthouse is obviously interconnected with the water. The lighthouse, and I maybe am reading too much into this, but hey, it's a podcast, so we're going to be doing this. The lighthouse usually overlooks water, right? So the lighthouse is something that pretty much controls uh vessels on water so i don't know i feel like it's this kind of it's this kind of like beacon of i'm going to rise above the water or i'm going to i'm going to uh enter the lighthouse and kind of move past my fear of water you know it, it, it's it's tough like if you were to take this as a thematic sort of uh, the, the lighthouse is sort of like a thematic element where where he's kind of like getting her over his fear of water I Think that would probably be the best way to look at it. Um, you know, the light, the lighthouse overlooks water, so you know, that's that's what I have really. But like, I mean, it's also it also provides this imagery of like, this is where Andrew Latus is going to end up. You know, the first time he goes to the lighthouse and he looks at it and he's just like, oh, I wonder what that is. And you know, the, the security guard, uh, <laughs> it, all I think of is Arthur Lee Allen from Zodiac because that's who he is from Zodiac. Um, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but he says that that's a sewage treatment plant. And you can tell that uh, Andrew Latus has no idea. I mean, like, you know, he's very intrigued by it. So I think the lighthouse plays a, a, an an integral part in kind of his sort of end game. And he even knows, or he has a feeling that that's the end game. You know, that's the end location that he's going to end up in. Uh, The note that says a rule of four or who is 67. Now this, was interesting because i for the longest time i had assumed that teddy had written that and it wasn't until this podcast <laughs> that i would considered that maybe it was Crawley. um because like my mind is just spinning right now um i i want to hear what you guys have to say about this because i had never considered that um but now that i think about it more and more it's kind of Crawley just poking him in the right direction and poking him to realize that he is 67 and he is latest and he, he he's he's reminding him of his own reality essentially you know he's reminding him of yeah th- that's 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 literally like what I take from it like I, like again this is all very live right now this is my live These <laughs> are my live thoughts because this is just introduced to me but I'm just Absolutely amazed by that poll. So well done, we, Pash. Well done, Aaron, for picking up we, on that because that's great. We've had
0: a handful of these moments on the show, and one of them uh, that I always go back to is Passengers when <laughs> Aaron was, <laughs> Aaron's Aaron's rating went from like a two and a half to a five because he was like, "Wait a minute, are you telling me that the ship might be sentient?" And then I, <laughs> and so. it, the the moment on the on the episode is just so classic because it's like. None of it's a script. It's like, what did you... You
2: know, here's my mind those, blown. We get those yeah. all the time. And it's, it's just so Honestly, it leads to us kind of like talking in circles because we're still kind of processing it. Like, uh, I can't remember what movie it was. I think we were talking about Prisoners. And Colin, my co-host, was talking about something that he picked up from Prisoners. And I, I nearly left the room because I love <laughs> Prisoners. And I've seen it so many times that I've never picked up on it. But yeah, absolutely. Um, but those are those are great talking points i think um and and, you know all of these things have a huge role to play in uh in andrew's rehabilitation you know in in his in his in this quest to make him realize or find his reality
1: yeah i can't take credit for that note so i'm gonna let patrick touch it because i too (laughs) i don't want you to feel alone zoheb because i had never considered that either actually and and it makes sense to me that it would be an attempt to slowly kick him back into his reality because he's going to have to do that at some point to overcome right. what his fear is of who he is uh you know I the the Shah woman you know for me I don't want to jump out of our notes to somewhere else but really it's all about the role play for me in this yeah. in this movie I, I the role play and what i and what i was talking about with perspective is I just watch this so intently now every scene because what I what I want to do is I want to pick it apart to be honest like I want to find out the consistencies and are they there and in every single scene does it prove to me that the lie is being you know managed across the board perfectly and it does for me I I don't find holes in it to be honest and it and it starts right there at the beginning with the water, so I'm going to kind of go a lot of order, but that opening scene with him being afraid of the water, and once you realize, well, oh, he's afraid of the water because of the drowning, and, and there's, it's just right away, and you realize, well, that's why he's coming into the island on a ferry, too, is to go go through the water, and just everything is crafted so meticulously to consider, to con- consistently keep hitting those triggers uh for Teddy. As he's progressing through the like role play and the, the, the game essentially is what it feels like. And the sh, sh woman, you know, is the second or so big one, or maybe it's actually the third. It comes after another great role play moment. And I kind of mix her in with this because it's all in this section of where they land on the island and they're walking in. And when they get to the land, I very consciously noticed that Teddy says, after meeting the warden, he says, Your boys seem a little on edge, warden. And all the cops, like, are locking their weapons and they're getting real serious there as I he, him. him and Chuck are coming through and they're staring at him. And when you're watching this the first time, you think nothing of it because you're like, This guy's a cop. He's a detective. There's somebody loose on the island. So obviously there's heightened security. No. No, it's because of him because they they don't want him to freak out and kill him, or you know they don't want to have to put him down and control him and, and and the warden's response to his him when he says, "Your boys seem a little on edge is he says right now, Marshall, we all are like they're nervous, they're playing this game, and they want it to go safely, and so then that rolls into that woman, and i for me, that was just a signal that okay, everybody's in on this like at this point, I need to understand." That if that creepy woman in the garden who's walking along beside him is in on this, like everybody's in on it. Like pretty much everybody's in on it, right? I-, I think that she has to know and whether she's drugged to the point where she can't communicate. And so this is her method of trying to communicate and explain it to him. Like, Hey, they, I think it's more, it's like a, they're keeping us quiet, right? We've been told to be quiet. This is me saying I've got to be quiet in a very creepy way so that it puts this lasting image in our heads. Cause it's cinematic. Uh, but I think that's really as far as she goes, you know, the, um, the lighthouse stuck out to me big time this time. And I thought about how the lighthouse in multiple movies that I've seen in the last few years has been used as this symbol of doom. So like in annihilation and the lighthouse itself, the movie, the lighthouse, like it's always, It's always bad, (laughs) okay? And it's supposed to exist to do what? To guide travelers safely through the water. And so it plays this dual role in this movie for me because I feel like the lighthouse is supposed to be guiding Teddy through his fear of the water to an eventual clarity and understanding and acceptance of who he is. But in doing so, it's simultaneously drawing him to a doom. Um... Almost like it's it's going to make it's it's going to bring him against the rocks, right? It's it's such a fascinating thing because it's supposed to do these two diametrically opposed tasks and, you know, it's supposed to save him. Ultimately, it brings him to this moment in the movie that ultimately is going to lead to the clarity, but it's not going to end the way that we would expect the lighthouse story to want to end right by bringing him safely home. It brings him home, but it signifies his doom as well, um, almost as if it's predestined in a sense. And so uh, The Lighthouse for me this time around was just a big focal point. I was really excited kind of watching that play out. And I think that that's one of the cool parts of this movie, Patrick, is just it's these things that you're pointing out. Frankly, you watch this movie the first time and you don't you don't notice any of this stuff because you don't understand that they matter. That's the brilliance of this film is that it's not until you understand the complete context that you can go back and be like, oh, that thing is there for this reason. And it makes it so much fun to unpack and kind of peel back that onion piece by piece. For so, sure. Yeah. So that's what I thought. Yeah. But I, want, I do want to hear about your rule of 67 and four.
0: Well, the the rule of 67, or who is 67, I think obviously refers to the patient. And when I look at when I look at that note. There's a comment about the handwriting. and I don't remember if it's Collie that says this is definitely the patient's handwriting. I don't know. If, I don't know if he says that. I need to go back and watch that part. But either it's I think it's either Dr. Collie or Chuck because Chuck is his psychiatrist. He's the he's his handler, essentially. And when you see that. If you watch some of the nonverbal cues that Kali gives when, when he says, "Yeah, we need to, you know, we need to look more closely at this," and 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 Teddy goes, "No, that's that's evidence." I don't know if there was a grin on Ben Kingsley's face, but I feel like there was a sense of, "Okay, he's getting it." And the thing is, I don't really think it matters who wrote it. I think it matters that it exists because what we what we glean from all this is that this has happened before, where he's had this breakdown and he's recovered by acknowledging the truth. And so we're actually getting a cycle We're we're, we're part of the cycle. I don't think it's happened more than twice because they haven't indicated this keeps happening. But I think he said like two years ago, the same thing happened and you, you know, you went off the rails. And so the rule of four, I don't know if that has to do with like, the three kids and his wife, or something like that. I couldn't quite get my head around that. That was really more of a. If you guys have any input, I'm all ears.
2: I uh I took it as uh, four names, right? So Andrew Latus. Uh, ah yes, yeah Teddy Teddy Daniels, and then Michelle Williams' character is Dolores Channel, and that translates to Rachel, Rachel Solando, right? Yeah.
0: Right. The the four the anagrams. Okay, well I'll I'll just stamp that and say that's mine too. Okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and call it the. <laughs> when I look at the at the woman at the very very beginning there's a part of me that almost thinks like it's his subconscious because if you watch her she is completely docile like she has no looks like she has no violent tendencies in her she's got a gardening tool for goodness sake and yet she looks beaten up she looks just worked over she has almost little to no hair and I feel like She represents, I don't think she actually exists because nobody acknowledges her. She doesn't come back at any given point. And I think Scorsese puts her there as a means to tell us, like, like she's telling Teddy, don't say anything else. You know, keep it quiet because this is going to happen to you. When I chose to fight this, boom, lobotomy. And in some ways, I feel like that may be what Scorsese is doing. Doesn't mean that. Everybody else's is wrong. I think this is what's amazing about symbols is that they could mean a whole bunch of different things. Case in point, the lighthouse, the lighthouse is a place of rescue. Like it is, yes, it's it represents a place where, in its physical form, what it literally represents is that light that guides ships so they don't hit rocks, so they don't crash into the shore. But it's a lighthouse, light representing knowledge representing the ability to see things more clearly that's the moment that teddy realized that he was not teddy that he was somebody else that he's been obviously through the assistance of collie and to chuck he realizes who he is and he actually in a sense at that moment comes to terms with it now i don't i don't think the the scene with him waking up in his bed was at, at the lighthouse i don't think that was it but that revelation for him happened In the lighthouse and i felt like that was scorsese using that symbol as a means to say we're going to expose the truth here we're going to literally shed light metaphorically shed light on what the actuality of who you are is and man water man water can be so deep pun intended completely but it's very much a a thing that's used a ton in this movie but it's used i mean symbolically everywhere it could represent life. It could represent death, you know, that someone can drown in a spoonful of water because it's choking from the very beginning. You're right. So he's like, oh, it's just water. It's just water. But there's a lot of it. He's splashing water on his face and the water separates him from. I didn't even realize that.
1: I didn't, I didn't even realize that. He's being afraid of water while splashing that's, water on his face. Yeah. I even,
0: exactly. Right. That's yeah. Brilliant. And it's not like he's saying I'm afraid of the ocean or I don't like big bodies of water. He just specifically says I don't like water. So watching that symbol sort of be used over and over again to represent a number of different kinds of motifs, I think Scorsese is doing a great job there because he's saying that I want this to be ambiguous. I want all these things. I want the woman, the roll of water, the lighthouse, and those notes. I want those to be ambiguous because what happens is It leads into that perspective that you mentioned earlier, Aaron. How do we watch this movie? We watch it from an unreliable narrator's point of view. We watch it from Teddy's point of view. But then we actually watch it from Collie's and from Chuck's the next time around because we know what the twist is. We know that he is not who he says he is. And that there's this blending of things that feels very weird, feels very ambiguous. And at the same time, there are nuggets of truth that live in that. It's kind of like the world we live in right now, where there are nuggets of truth that live in all this misinformation that we're given all over the interwebs and from the different different kinds of sources of, of quote unquote credible places. And we have to discern and figure out what the actual truth is. And this is why I think right now, for me, Shutter Island is such a great film, because I think it represents that that journey that we get tormented by all these different truths that did my wife kill herself did she get burned did she did she die in a fire no she didn't oh she was actually this and now my guilt is the thing that's actually driving this whole thing but at the same time none of that feels like it resolves because Teddy is still Teddy he's still been bruised by this he's still been broken by this event and of course it makes the ending that much crazier and we'll get there but i wanted to talk a little bit about the role of role play specifically but in general this idea of therapy one of the things that really intrigued me about shutter island uh watching it from a well i'm gonna call it the feel and film point of view because i I've, i've told aaron this that when i when we're watching movies again after you know post starting the show i look at them very differently i look at them obviously with the point of taking notes and creating discussion points but also looking at them really more critically. And critically not in a way to say what's good or bad but really looking at the art. And watching Shutter Island this time around I really really honed in on the importance of therapy. Of therapy for these patients as as Kali continues to say, they're not criminals, they're patients. And he makes it a point to tell Teddy that and correct him at one point, which it's really subtle. It's just one line. Teddy says, now this this criminal patient. And (laughs) Kali has this almost innate sense of saying, you're not going to mess up what's going on here. And when you watch this play out and you see the different methods that have been explored either through exposition or that are being explored, What does the movie Scorsese, maybe specifically, or his team, but the movie in general, what do you guys think it has to say about the importance of therapy in general, regardless of what the type of therapy is?
2: Yeah, I think um, just to just to add a little bit on what you were saying there, Pash, the the, I I, that's one of my favorite elements of this entire movie is just this perspective of uh, Teddy coming into this into this, I guess, prison or you know, penitentiary, hospital, whatever you want to call it. I guess it's a hospital. And him automatically assuming that these are prisoners, these are criminals. You know, like, and then the insistence on the on uh, Crawley's part, where he's just like, no, these are patients. Uh, like, it's it's that that to me is, you know, in the in the job that I have, in the career that I have, um, it's really something that I try and um, make people aware of you know if you have a violent if you have an offender or rather a violent offender who commits a crime it's really important for them to for someone who is commenting from commenting about that particular crime just completely removed from that from that crime just looking at it in a newspaper it's important for me to notify them hey you should know that this person might have something else happening in their lives. Like, you know, like it's not just what you read in the papers. It's there's a whole, I guarantee you there's a whole backstory here. It's quite possible that there's something to do with their childhood. So uh, it's, you know, we live in this world where it's really easy and really, you know, we are quick to judgment, right? And that whole element, of Teddy coming into this penitentiary and being like, Hey, uh, these are all criminals. <laughs> that's just, that's one of my favorite elements of, of this entire movie. Um, but look, getting to what this movie says about um, the role of therapy. It's interesting because we've got two, pretty much two sides of this, this coin, right? So you've got Crawley's, uh, sorry, is it Crawley or Crawley with an R? It's, it's Crawley with an R, it's, right? It's Crawley. It's Crawley with
1: an R, oh, but yeah. Patrick gets names wrong all the time. So we just pretend that it's fine. Right it's easier Kali? yeah i
0: think imdb says collie. does it no it doesn't does I'm it really gonna look, i'm gonna look real quick anyway we'll just call yeah, it Ben I, kingsley he still gets
1: names out. wrong all the time
2: even if That's he's true. right this time But i'm
0: all right, just saying right. this time around i'm saying it's Callie. but i'm gonna i'm gonna okay.
2: verify <laughs> okay, okay um yeah I'm, I'm looking at wikipedia which is also not the most you know best place to get this information but i'm saying Callie as well uh but look so We've got two sizes. of coin. Corley's method, which is the more non-violent, let's save this guy's brain uh, and make him come back to reality element. And then you've also got uh, Dr. Nierings, uh who is played by the great Max von Sydow. Um, You've got his perspective on it, which is, no, this is, this is a lost cause. It's time to lobotomize. And I think this is a, from what I've read, and it's very surface level, but I believe the nineteen fifties was kind of like a turning point for uh psychological therapy in terms of um I'm I'm using this and you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest as well as kind of like reference points, but lobotomies were seen as a effective method, yet also one that led to a lot of deaths <laughs> for for very, very obvious reasons. Um so I think I think at this time, what Corley's method is a lot more progressive, and Corley's method is what would, I'm not saying would be used today, but it's something like this, you know, like something like, you know, we should take a practical approach instead of just, you know, foregoing the patient's mind and taking the easy route out, you know, like we should be able to talk this out, you know, we should be able to get through this without violence or without taking a very drastic step and non-reversible step which is the lobotomy obviously corley's uh role play is very ambitious it's a very ambitious attempt to save his mind like you know this is this requires a lot of moving parts you know from the guards to the staff to the patients it, there's there's just so much work at play here to save this one person's mind whereas like you know dr nearing's Method is much more straight and to the point, and the easy way out. I think the movie essentially, in the end, is trying to show you that Cawley's method of pretty much putting as much work into a patient as you possibly can might result in a good outcome. You know, like we'll get to the end, we'll get to our uh, interpretation of the end and whether, you know, uh, Teddy's mind is saved. But I think that's what the movie's trying to sort of discern, you know, like the wor- the more work you put into a patient, the better the outcome, you know, like the, I, I think, I think lobotomy might be the worst possible route that you can take with a, with a, with a patient. Because I mean, you know, we're living in a world right now when people are pretty much automatically prescribed <laughs> pills and medicine, which is in itself a lot of lobotomy. <laughs> right. I mean, like you are kind of like numb, you know, you you see this all in media all the time. So it's yeah, I think that's what honestly the movie's trying to say. Uh Aaron, would you do you do you have do you have a take on that? Well, we're forgetting the best movie about lobotomy,
1: which is Sucker Punch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh oh baby. Gosh. Literally,
1: oh baby. No, kidding. Um about it being the best. I'm kidding it is about lobotomy. It does have lobotomy as the main theme. But uh yeah, no, I I agree with you wholeheartedly there. I think you know, for me, I watch this and like every element of this film, I feel it's in the gray area, which is like my favorite thing to explore in movies. I think that there are maybe some good intentions to this therapy. I think there are some very selfish intentions to this therapy. I think those who created it want it to work, not just because it's better for Teddy and Andrew latest here, but like because it is proof that they've been able to create something. It's a self-satisfying kind of thing. And I think to that end, that's why you can justify being able to do human trials. That's why people throughout time have justified hurting people in the name of science, in the name of progress. Oh, well, few people got to suffer for us to find something that's going to better other people down the road. And that's okay. And people are able to to write that off. And so I think that part of this is about him, Teddy, Andrew Latus, but I, I don't think it's all about him. I think it's maybe even equally about proving the system can work. And it's fascinating to me because I don't get the sense that this is what we try to do with criminals anymore. This, this is not, the type of rehabilitation I don't think that is focused on enough. And maybe that's just because the prison systems are overwhelmed. And so there's just too many people, but I feel like that our country, at least America has gone way more to more of a, well, put them in and throw away the key. So be it kind of mentality. And so I'm conflicted because I wonder, you know, I I'm a big believer in therapy in general and I've gone through enough to know that there have been different methods that have affected me at different times, right? And so I understand that something as drastic as this could be needed. And I think that for him, clearly they've tried pretty much everything, but there, there's such a gray area. There's such a just, it doesn't feel great to know that you are creating a lie to try and get to the truth because it just doesn't sit well. It it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me sometimes. And, uh, and so I question it. I, I question the legitimacy of it. And I wonder in the end, how much of it really is about saving this man or making this man into, uh, someone who can be, you know, a contributing member of society, even if it's his asylum society versus getting proof that the drug works so we can get it on the market, uh, so to speak. Uh, And, and I think that the performances are great because they are played in a way in which you never can quite believe either way is all the way. You can believe that Kali would be doing both that there would, there's, there's elements of both of those things that he wants out of this situation. Uh But ultimately, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I like it. I like the idea that there's an attempt being made to save a person and to bring them back to the point where maybe, just maybe they can get on with their life. But it sort of ties into my feelings at the end. So I will hold that until we get to the you know, final choice that Teddy makes and what we think about that.
0: When I look at the the role of therapy in this movie, I think it's asking the question, why is the therapy taking place? Is it for the benefit of the patient or the population? And to make a really overly sweeping generalization, I feel like Collie's method is trying to serve the patient. Whereas the lobotomy method is trying to serve the population because the point of a lobotomy is not maybe a byproduct is to help the patient, but the point is to make them docile, to make them not dangerous anymore. And you can argue that lobotomies essentially take the pain away, but they take everything else away too. And pain is a part of being a human being and dealing with that pain. I've got a relative of mine who is a recovering alcoholic and his stressor that triggers that is work. How do you deal with that? He's got a wife and two kids, and he's taking care of his mother in law. How do you deal with that? Right? So what's the method? Well, if we take the Shutter Island approach, you could either just take his brain away and let him sit in a, in a chair drooling all day and then have him get paid Social Security and support the rest of his family, but he has no life. Or you can have him work through those issues, sit with him, weekly and talk through some of the challenges of what those stressors are at work, what triggers that, and how to combat those. And I think in some ways, Kali is trying to find progressive methods, not to try to make a profit. I never saw that with his motive. I I never saw Kali as being someone who was trying to become the next Nobel Prize winner. I think he genuinely saw his patients as that, those that needed help. And why he's not in a system that uses that doesn't treat criminals it treats i guess quote regular people or non-violent offenders maybe there is some kind of personal motivation he's like this is going to be a challenge and i want that but we don't know enough about him from the movie to be able to discern that what we know is that he's here and everything about him throughout the movie watching it for the first time through or for the 50th time through tells us that he cares he has a genuine sincere caring empathetic attitude towards each one of his patients. I think not just because it's a a roster that needs to be accounted for, but I think there's a reason why he knows the exact count of his patients because he's with them. He understands them and he's not the, he's the head guy, but there are handlers. So he obviously knows that he can't handle all 67 of these patients. He has to be able to have a team of people and he has to get them to buy into that. And what we see which is very much real in any kind of leadership environment is that not everybody's going to buy into that and you're going to have conflicting leadership. So as a subordinate, as one of these, not patients, but these orderlies having to deal with this, some, you know, we don't get into the, the other cast members because they're not necessarily like as important, but you got to think if you're an orderly at this place and you have these two guys that are kind of pushing two different agendas. Yeah. You're going to be a little conflicted because you're like, ah, I'm here because I need money or I'm here because I really believe in the cause or I'm here because I want to see a lobotomy. You know, it, you know, it could range whatever your motives are, but I look at a guy like Kali and I think Ben Kingsley's performance really does solidify this, that he sees these patients as human beings first and foremost, and he knows that they need to be made well. But At the same time, he also understands that sometimes it's not that way. And sometimes the worst case scenario has to be the scenario that you that you go with. Um, I think he just wants them to. Well, we'll get into that later. But um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this use of dream sequences, because I think a dream sequence, much like Chekhov's gun, if it's misused or if it's used incorrectly, it can be very distracting. Scorsese, I think, does a fantastic job with blending the real world with the dream world to help give us that ambiguity. I think we talked about that earlier. But looking at Teddy, what kind of power do those dreams have for him as he's going on this journey? And what do they reveal about him, do you think?
2: Oh, man, that that was a tough question for me to approach. I, I think they do a... I think it adds to the confusion. Like, for the audience, it's really in there for uh to disassociate the audience you know it's like like there is the way Scorsese and this is Thelma Thelma Screwmaker, right I think that's his editor like it's the same editor he's worked with for a very long time but yes. essentially it, the way it's edited in it's very um stark you know like there's no you know flash of light and then we go to it it's just in there and it's just like why how are we seeing like what are we seeing why are we seeing it? you know, it's all of a sudden Teddy's got, you know, a, a military uniform on, he's got a helmet on, is suddenly at uh, this concentration camp. What's happening? Um, so it really makes us feel very like disassociated, much like I think how Teddy is supposed to be feeling. You know, like I think it's a very, it's a very amazing filmmaking uh, element that Scorsese is using here to try and put us in the shoes of Teddy. Uh, that really works out for the better. Um, and it really it really kind of like talks to how his mental state is. You know, like this is, uh, of course, a movie all about Teddy's mental state. So like where as the movie starts, we're seeing Teddy's mental state and as the movie progresses, we're seeing how that mental state changes and how he starts to remember and reflect on his actual reality as Andrew Latus. I think I, I don't, I don't have too much to add here. I think that it's that the dreams are a indication of him starting to slowly come back to Andrew latest and slowly like for the, the it's an indication that Corley's method is working essentially. That's my, that's my take on it uh, because, you know, when we, when we do get to the end and, you know, like our, our takes on things, cause I'd love, I'd love to hear how you guys interpret the end. Um, I, I have an interpretation and I, uh, it's an it's an optimistic <laughs> interpretation. You can 100% take this in a pessimistic way, but I wanted this. I mean, like, I kind of fell in love with this character. I mean, you know, maybe it was DiCaprio's performance. I actually think it was because he's just, he's so endearing at times, and he's just so, he feels real. Like, he feels like a real-life person. He feels like someone who is conflicted in his mind, and he's just, he, he he's, you know, in on the surface he's trying to get to the bottom of this uh rachel Solando mystery but you know come to find out that he's this person who's gone through trauma right and you know once you get to that element of it it's just like oh my god i actually really feel for this guy and i'm like you know i I watched this with my dad last night and we were just we really wanted him to come out on top (laughs) and you know we walked away from this movie being like okay i'm taking the optimistic approach
1: yeah, I think, you know, these are all themes that tie together fairly strongly. And, you know, for me, his dreams are indicative of our desire to hold on to memories as humans, our desire to, our, the power of our minds to shape our memories into... The way that we want things to be, sometimes, I can tell you, you know, I've gone through two divorces and, you know, a very traumatic ending to my first career in the Navy. And these things have left me with, I would say, probably not an exactly perfect memory of certain events that took place. I remember pieces of them. I remember the things I want to remember And we see that with Teddy, we see him trying to hold on to things. And so because of that, I think that his dreams essentially are allowing us to understand the heart and the character of the character, because what he is when he's not dreaming is supposed to be just this guy who's investigating a mystery for most of the movie. It's when we learn about him in the dreams, we learn about what is important to him what makes him feel, what he's experienced in his life that may shape the way that he thinks about the world around him as he progresses through on this case and solving this mystery. And I think that's brilliant because it takes away the need for exposition, for him to just sit there and tell us a story about what happened in World War Two, for him to dream it and to switch back into these Previous thoughts for us, you know the way- especially the stuff with Dolores's wife, like everything about when she pops back into his mind, like I haven't lost somebody due to murder or due to you know the kind of events that Teddy has gone through, but I certainly have had relationships where I am constantly thinking about the person that is no longer that big of a part of my life, and that's what I see in Teddy, I see triggers, I see. I look over there and I see a certain flower that reminds me of the one date we had in the garden. And now I'm remembering a moment of holding that person in the garden and it's cinematic in my head, just like we see depicted in this film in Teddy's dreams. And so I think that also I would say for me, like I haven't done this in a while, but when I was growing up, I had. I think there's a name for this, but the, I had the ability to manipulate my dreams. Sounds cool. I'm not like, you know, Dr. Strange or anything here, but, uh, you know, I would be actively dreaming and I could consciously shift what was happening in the story. It was almost like a choose your own adventure. Like I knew, just knew that I was making decisions. At least that's what it felt like in my head, right? And sometimes I see that Teddy is sort of doing that as well. It feels like he's going on this path. It's not just him walking through a memory, but he's kind of altering things as he goes. Um, and so it's fascinating. And it's, it's a wonderful way to just look inside his soul without him having to sit down and spew it out in words. And, you know, like so many movies would do if they were going to be a straight drama about trauma. And yes, I know that rhymes.
0: That's a great thought. I
1: think dreams
0: have a lot of potential to be powerful, not only in the real world, but also in the film world. And I think what Scorsese does really well here is he does what, he depicts dreams like we would experience them as a means to help explain something. There's a, whether you're spiritual or not, or you you ascribe to a certain faith, there is a universal truth about how there's something about dreams that's mysterious. And when you go to sleep and you wake up and say, I had the weirdest dream, there are times when I wake up and in my dream, I have done something that I'm ashamed of and I'm afraid to talk about it because I'm afraid that it will reflect bad on me. Like, how could I have that dream? That's so embarrassing. Or if I did something violent or if I, I did something that was just completely not my character and I look at what Scorsese is doing and I'm going to do a shameless plug here for Satoshi Kon the the late Japanese anime director who put out I think four films that I watched a couple of summers ago as part of my uh, summer of anime fell in love with him as a director and what he does in at least two of his films possibly three is he effectively blurs the line between reality and fantasy. Uh, There's a movie called Millennium Actress and then a movie called Perfect Blue. Both I would recommend, uh, they're both on Amazon for rent or to purchase if you want to, but they deal with that. They use that element of blending these two. And so there are times when you don't know, wait, are we experiencing the dream or are we experiencing the reality? And the effect of that is that we have to kind of figure out what's real or what's truthful and shutter island does the same thing we obviously know that his wife is not in the prison with him we know that she's not physically with him we know that she is dead but because of the way that it's shot the way that the colors pop in certain ways and then they kind of go desaturated we start to interpret that It's not just that he's dreaming about this, but that he's gleaning information and that for him, the blending doesn't bother him. In fact, it's a good thing because it informs what his truth is. And that kind of leads into something else I wanted to ask about, which is how Scorsese handles that idea of truth and specifically how important that is to Teddy, his truth versus the actual truth. Because as we realize, those are two different things, Teddy's truth. And then the world's truth about him and about what's going on. And I wanted to kind of pose that question: What is the movie saying about the importance of truth to Teddy specifically?
2: Oh man, um, the importance of truth to Teddy specifically—that—that that is, I mean, that's the crux of the movie right there. <laughs> if anything, uh, like, what? Okay, well, if you look at it this uh, this way, what is it? Why is it important to Teddy that he live the life of Andrew Laters? You know, like why not why not continue living it as as Teddy was it? Teddy Daniels? Like why not continue living this life as someone who uh investigates crimes, you know, as a US marshal? Like what like you know, this is supposedly in his words a good man. Like, you know, like why not in his own mind be this person? But like why what like this essentially this therapy this therapy can result in two things and I think that none of them, neither of them are mutually exclusive, it's to A make him uh, quote better, right, and B uh, to bring him down, because to make him realize that he's a monster which is Angelatus, right so like, the, the importance of Truth to Teddy is just that, I think I think it's a negative, <laughs> you know. And it took me a while to get to that point because, you know, like the first time I'm watching this as a kid—well, not as a kid, but as a teenager—I'm just like, yeah, you know, like let him realize his truth, like that's who he is, whatever. Like his, you know, th- th- to me when I was that young, I was just in it mostly for the uh, mystery element of it, you know, like it, it's just one of those things to me. But like now, as a as a grown up, you know, as a grown up, whatever, <laughs> um, I've had experiences in my life where I've just being able to take those experiences into this movie and uh, come up with a different sort of conclusion or a different kind of mindset. The truth of this movie, well, I mean, the importance of truth in this movie to Teddy is, I guess it's, I guess it's not that important. <laughs> you know, I guess it, like to, to Teddy, it's just not that important and it shouldn't be. I mean, this is someone who should be happy and if he's happy as Teddy the persona Teddy, if this is what brings him, you know, like he's able to, uh, he's able to work on something. He's able to focus on something. He's able to focus on this mystery. He's not, um, you know, he's not in anguish thinking about his dead wife and his dead children, which is what happens when he realizes that he is Andrew, right? You know, like it's, if he's, if he's going through life as Teddy for the rest of his life, he's happy. And, but although that's not the truth, that's him being happy. That's his rehabilitation. Uh, so I think the importance of truth to Teddy is, I don't want to use the word inconsequential, but I do want to say for his betterness or for his wellness, it's not that important. To be injury latest, it's not that important. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely does. It, it does. Man, it, it, it does. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to blend this last section together, Patrick. Sorry, because I think that it, it goes together for me. And this is, this is the end, right? This is what it is. And to me, and I wrote this in my review of the film and I say review in my letterbox, like one sentence that I wrote like two, two years ago or whatever the last time I watched it was for me, this is the ultimate conclusion of the red pill, blue pill argument. Like this is, this is it playing out to the end of what it would be. And I always get them confused. Is red pill reality? Red
2: pills, red
1: pills, fantasy, right? Blue pills, reality. I don't know which one's which.
2: <laughs> I always uh, forget. Pretty sure, pretty sure, red pill is the uh, is the non reality. So blue the pill fantasy. The re- okay, yeah. good. So I've non-reality. always always said
1: that I would take the red pill. I would take the non reality, and I, I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. I feel like. I want, if if I'm able to believe, if I'm able to fool myself, if the illusion can be strong enough that I'm happy, I would rather have untruthful happiness than truthful misery. And that's what Teddy gets to. That's the point where he gets. And so I don't think it's important to him. I don't. And it's, there's little fun little nods to this. Like at one point, there's a great line where it's right before he is going to have this ultimate ending. And he's talking to Dolores in his dreams, in his visions of her. And he says, I'm sorry, honey, I love this thing because you gave it to me. But the truth is it's one effing ugly tie. And he's starting to try and express like what to me, it's like a test run. It's like, this is what it would be like for me to tell the truth. And he's, he's trying, but ultimately he can't, right? And his memory of her, her hold on him, she's begging him not to do this because she, she, the subconscious she in his memory knows that if he makes this choice, he loses her. Like she's gone. He will never be able to remember her. The way that he once knew her before she committed this evil act, which led him to his evil act, which I don't think he is a monster. I think it's justice, if anything. It's a sense of justice for him and what he did in killing her. It's not like he went to someone randomly on the street to murder them. This was a it was, it was almost like, you know, one of the, it's not even a crime of passion. its It's justice. Like he was doling it out for his kids in a sense, because he couldn't protect them. And so he's trying to retroactively send of make up for that. Um, and and it, so I wouldn't want to, the truth either. Like, I get it. and uh, And so I don't think it's important to him. I think it's important to his persona, Teddy Daniels. I think the role play of being an investigator and a detective and a marshal who seeks nothing but truth to solve mysteries is a brilliant play because the real person clearly doesn't want it. Andrew latest doesn't want truth. Um, and ultimately that being the decision that he makes for himself. I mean, it's sort of an obvious answer in the end because he tells us what he wants. (laughs) He makes it very clear. He's like, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to deal with it, you know? And, um, and I'm conflicted. Like I am about so much of this movie because it's, While he is still going to live in the sense of physically exist after a lobotomy, most likely, or maybe, it's almost like suicide. It's like suicide of the mind, intentional suicide of the mind in order to get away from the pain. And like, how is it? And when you peel back that layer and you look at it like that, you say, you know, how is it any different than someone taking their own life to get away from the trauma in their lives. We would all be against that. We would all say no, seek help, talk to someone. People love you. People care about you. But yet this film and this story, you know, paint Teddy in a light where, it, you know, we almost want that for him. We're almost okay with it because we don't want him to have to live with it. And so it's a struggle to your one more takeaway. Uh, that's what it is in me because I never can really fully land so have on one way or the other when I watch this because I know myself if I was in his shoes would struggle and I don't know that it would be easy for me to come to a conclusion about whether or not the truth was important enough for me either
0: so to create a counterpoint to that I I think that all of that is is spot on in terms of perspective and this is the brilliance of this movie and Scorsese's touch on it. Uh, and that last moment of Teddy saying, asking him if it would be asking Chuck, if it would be better to live as a monster or die as a good man, and then willingly chooses to be lobotomized. I look at that and I think about John Nash and of course I don't know the guy. I haven't read about him, but I've seen the depiction of him in a beautiful mind, which I know has its own historical errors. But, one of the fact is that for a while he was tormented for most of his life with these voices in his head. And I'll tell a quick personal story. I, I used, to, I worked with a guy for a while who, who had nuts, he had similar tendencies and the way in which he was quote cured was he was medicated. And for a long time he dealt with that. So if you look at him on kind of like a spectrum, His personality type would go up, you know, really up, big ups and big downs, big ups and big downs. And then after that kind of, hey, this isn't safe, I need to probably get some help, got some help. And his waves were a lot shorter, right? They were just kind of, you know, small waves instead of tsunamis. And he recently made a decision to leave the company to kind of reset his world, go back to school and things like that. And he was kind of decompressing from this medication that had just gotten him so messed up. And I was thinking about him and John Nash as I was thinking about Teddy and how these guys are choosing to live, my friend and John Nash are choosing to live with this torment, this these voices in their heads or this mental illness or whatever you want to call it, this disability for the sake of feeling like they're actually living, like they're human beings. And when I look at the decision that teddy made i don't know that he is dying a good man because he's not living as a monster i mean he's living with regret and he's living with the understanding that he did commit this act and of course i can't speak as someone who has done this i can't speak empathetically for him but to be able to live through that and cope with it and recognize the the grief that you have to carry with you to me i think that's really living i think that's really living The important thing is, how does Teddy feel? Does Teddy feel like he's really living if he has to live at that? And him walking away and choosing to take the other route, I think was his truth. And I think his truth is what he wanted it to be. And for maybe a lot of people, that's the way. It's the way that as long as I feel content and I feel like the world around me makes sense to me, I'm going to choose that life, even if it's at the expense of other people or other relationships or life situations. For Teddy, I don't know that he was losing much because he didn't have any kind of family connection that we know of. Really, what he was losing was probably any kind of real life. And for him, real life was not appealing. It wasn't satisfying comparatively to just saying, I'm just going to give this up. I'm gonna give up the ghost, and whatever comes out of it, if it's death, or if it's being a docile guy holding a gardening tool for the next dude that walks in and going shh to him, that's you know so be it. So I I think that I don't think the ending's ambiguous from my standpoint. I think it's a hard decision because you either take the Matrix red pill blue red red pill red pill blue pill approach and you choose to be naive. Or you, ch- or you take the John Nash approach and you realize, you know what, my life can't just be about the guilt that I feel and that torment. I can work through that torment and eventually come out of this, maybe being able to function in real life. And the thing is, he's got people to support him. He's got his therapist, Chuck, and he's got Dr. Colley. These are two people who are right by his side, literally, metaphorically, and he chooses to walk away from that. And to me, that was sad you know, I wrestle with that. And I, when I watch this movie, it hits me differently every time I watch it because there are some times when I'm like, great decision. Yeah. Don't, don't live with that torment anymore. And then I think, but who's he walking away from? He was sitting right next to his best friend or I guess his best friend. It was his partner, but and and in his mind, he didn't know him that well, obviously, but maybe this was an opportunity for him to really start over and be able to deal with what it was that, He's tried to avoid living with through this delusion.
1: Can I note that I love that moment by the way? just I love the the quick shot of Ruffalo's character, Chuck, just very clearly sad and wrestling with the fact that Andrew was choosing this, and he just goes along with it reluctantly. But you can see it written all over his face that he is, like us, like us as audience members, struggling with the decision and his own personal feelings of what he wants Andrew to do. And the feelings probably of failure, of not having been able to get him through this to this point where he's making this choice, but yet caring about him enough to continue the ruse in order to let him go through with this in his lie, I just, I, that, maybe that's my getting to point, actually, like, if I think about it now, I'm saying it out loud, but, like,
2: I really loved that just really quick little moment there between
1: those two characters.
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely, I think you 100% hit the nail on the head there, and, like, the small, I, I, man, I no one, no one talks about um, just how good Mark Ruffalo is in this movie, because, man, just his little his little moments, his little <laughs> patches nodding in agreement. Uh, but yeah, his little looks, his little uh, moments that he has, you know, when the camera cuts over to him, they speak volumes, dude. And I think Mark Ruffalo just as a whole is a fantastic actor. He's really come into his own in the last few years, especially, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen it already, check out a movie called dark waters. came out pretty recently. Um, but, look, getting back to this, Patch, I think you raised something that was really interesting, and that was uh, when you spoke about how how Andrew Latus isn't necessarily a monster. Um, I, I I do agree, I, but I disagree to an extent. So I think the movie makes a concerted effort to remind you that Andrew Latis is a monster. Um, you know, they... They constantly, well, not constantly, but they quite a few times they mentioned that he is a violent patient. So he was like patient with, uh, sorry, he was violent with other patients. Um, he even had like a altercation with his uh, cellmate, George Noyce, right? To the point where he physically scarred him, um, which is, which was interesting. So it, it, it kind of like reminds me of... Um, just just from like a screenwriting perspective of like we should uh you know we should be feeling sympathetic for this person yet at the same time don't get too don't get too sympathetic because this guy's still a murderer this guy's still someone who has violent tendencies, and you know if it's if we don't if we don't set his mind right quote right end quote um then he's just gonna keep hurting people. You know, like, it's its, it's last straw, basically. Um, fair point, yeah. A fair point. I don't know. I just think, yeah, I, I think Scorsese makes a concerted effort to keep reminding you that Andrew Latis is a monster to get you to this decision, you know? like Because this, this, this decision doesn't work if Andrew Latis isn't set up as a monster or set up as someone who is supposed to be reprehensible. I think... Yeah, I, I honestly I think you hundred percent hit the nail on the head. Like this is an interesting look at someone who is recognizing just how dangerous they are and just how much of a threat they pose to the people around them that it's just it's a sacrificial move, you know, it's uh I'm going to for the better of the people around me and hopefully for the better of my own mental state, make this decision to keep acti- acting as Teddy and go and get this lobotomy, and then hopefully I'll be okay. I'll be all the better for it. But I know the people around me will be better. You know, like There's there's two possible possible elements here. Um, knowing that the people around him will be safe is pretty much a sure thing. You know, because you're docile, you know, or, or you're dead. <laughs> Either or. I mean, you know, that's the lobotomy outcome. But there's also the you know the silver lining that. You know, and and the chances of this is slightly smaller that he will recover from the lobotomy. You know, like, he will recover mentally, he will recover physically, and he'll be able to live his life as Andrew Latis and he'll be... He'll move on, you know? He'll be rehabilitated, which is why he's here, right? I mean, this is... Don't forget, like, the reason why he's here and the reason why we have a system where people either go to jail or slash prison or hospital uh, is to... Jail and prison is more of a punitive measure, and obviously hospital is more of a rehabilitation measure. So I think this choice is interesting from that perspective. You know, I think this choice is this choice. <laughs> when I first saw this, definitely threw me for a loop. I was like, why is he doing this willingly? You know, like I, I had a, a whole bunch of questions. But again, in the last 10 years or so since this movie has been out, by the way, it's been 10 years since this movie came out, which Don't blows say my like mind. That. <laughs> <laughs> it blows my mind I've experienced so much more in the last ten years you know just just uh, growing up and becoming who I am that this decision has so much more weight for me and I am proud of Andrew Latus taking this positive step to be better you know it's 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 for a bleak and dark film you know for something that presents itself as a dark film as like this very Close to noir film, like you know, it's very close to being a noir film. If it weren't for like, you know, really starkly lit daylight sequences and stuff like that, it, it, thematically it's very noir. Thematically it's very dark. You know, you've got the trench coats, you've got smoking cigarettes, rain, whatever. However you want to you know interpret it, but the ending is surprisingly positive, and that is amazing to me. Like you know, for him to for for him to make this movie, and have this really because another another one word uh descriptor that i was toying with was dread like that was another descriptor that i was like really toying with but i was like "Ah, that doesn't really fit because the ending you know the ending is very uh optimistic uh you know well well, that's rather how i how i wanted to have a look at it so yeah that's my thoughts on the ending (laughs) i love it i love i love the
1: way you just put that too Uh, yeah he's making that choice for others i mean that Spins it in another light completely. Uh,
0: yeah, and you've you kind of you kind of changed my perspective on it with you're right that Scorsese is deliberate. I guess I just didn't pick up on and again, this always comes when you watch movies, they hit you differently based on the point of your life that you're at. But you're right that Scorsese does make a a a deliberate point to let you know that he's not a safe guy. That either because of his torment, because of what he's experiencing, he has to be in check and it's sad the lobotomy is the last ditch effort that could save him uh erin you mentioned chuck there's this it's that you're right it's that nonverbal look and then there's that little just that shake of the head like yeah. and it wasn't like it wasn't like he was saying oh sorry he was like that's it he's made the choice and i think in that moment chuck is realizing that teddy is consciously saying what he's saying to basically put it out there officially, like I think he knows that Teddy's aware that he is not Teddy, but that he poetically makes this dialogue happen. And I as sad as it is, I love that Ruffalo's character Chuck, he calls him boss one last time. He, it's almost like he's endorsing it regrettably, but he's endorsing the decision that he's making. And and you're right. Mark Ruffalo has a special place in my heart. He's he's been a, a favorite of mine for a number of years. And I've got Dark Water on my watch list to watch at some point. But I I told Aaron this, I said, these last two Leo movies, they've got great supporting cast. You know, I've got I've got my Christopher Walken, you know, from Catch Me If You Can. Now I've got Mark Ruffalo for this one. I'm like, let's just keep adding great supporting
2: Absolutely. people to, Absolutely. Our, to our movie
0: list. So Well, with that said, let's move into our connecting points that one moment, character line, whatever it is—that one thing in the movie that you connected with the most—and so we're gonna go ahead and start with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's it's the visual language of this uh, that mostly hits it home for me. Um, it's Teddy's kind of dream as is holding his wife. Um, oh God, I was gonna say Rachel Solando, but it's not Rachel Solando. Uh, this is the anagrams coming into play again. But yeah, yeah, Michelle Williams' character as she just fades away uh into ash. And just the way that Teddy's kind of, you know, standing there and just frozen. Oh man. It's it's it was honestly heartbreaking. Even the first time I saw it, it was just something that just kind of knocked threw me for a loop because I I frankly had not seen something like that before. And it came very early in the movie. I was not expecting that to be that early in the movie. Like, you know, it was, I think it was in the first half hour or so. Um, you know, She's, she's talking and she turns around and, you know, the back of her, her, her whole back is like singed. And I'm just like, what, what is happening here? And then, you know, he, he starts holding her and the water comes out and it's just, Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I, it's, it's tough for me to articulate it because this is, I find this a lot with emotional uh, kind of like connecting points in movies all the time it's tough for me to articulate them because it's more of a feeling than a actual critical look at things. Like, you know, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a look at the way the cinematography, look at the way the music and the acting and the dialogue kind of like comes together in one, one moment that just absolutely puts a pinpoint on the movie for me. And that's this, this moment. Yeah. It's the
1: same for me. And like you I'm just sorry kinda, to your
2: thunder too, Aaron. <laughs> like No, not not
1: at all. We we them. We, we a lot of times Patrick and I will have the same one because we are very similar in the way that we feel and we think, and so quite often we will react and resonate with the same moment in a movie, even if there's, you know, plenty of great options. So it's not not bad a thing at all. But it, it is what you just said. I was shocked that this was in the first quarter of the movie. I I net I like in my head, in my memory, my unreliable memory. You know, I always have thought of this scene being so much later in the movie for some reason. But it is. It's very early before we really understand any of the concept behind what he's what his relationship with his wife is. There's basically no context at this point. Exactly. And that's why for me, it's like a blank slate. And so I'm not going to lie. Like it's a connecting point for me because I'm projecting onto it. It's not because of Teddy and Dolores as much as it's me thinking this is a person to me that I'm relating to. And this is a person to me who is saying, you got to let me go. And I'm saying, no, I want a little bit longer. I don't want to let you go. I want to hold on to this moment. And I don't care that there is ash raining from the sky. And that there are, you know walls burning down completely around us like I'm going to just grab this thing and I'm going to hold on to this thing no matter what it takes no matter what it costs because I can't let it go I'm just unwilling to do that to the point that the only way for that thing to actually be let go is for it to like disintegrate itself on its own accord like it has to leave without me against my will uh, in order for me to finally be without it for any moment of time. And so I, I guess I just, it's like, a, it's like it takes the air out of me because I have experienced that feeling in my life in, in brief moments, of course, not, you know, it's not like something that has controlled my every being, or I'd be in a mental hospital, I suppose, like our buddy Teddy. But, you know, it, it has been something that I understand. And when you couple that with, your beautiful words, the visual language of the film and the just aesthetic and the way that those dream sequences are so surreal and and so just strikingly shot from a cinematography perspective. And with the perfect score behind it, I I noticed when I was looking up the notes for this, there's no composer and it's because they used all existing classical tracks and just took them and kind of put them together in different ways and it's got one of the most beautiful themes. I don't know the name of the actual
2: piece I of music. Oh, please do. So, drop it. Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite composers. So his name is Max Richter, okay. uh, who did the uh, theme, that, who composed all of the music for the show The Leftovers, for Damon Lindelof's The Leftovers. Um, but this song, this actual song is called On the Nature of Daylight. It also appears in Arrival, which is the Denis Villeneuve yes. film. Yeah. It's a fantastic yeah, It's take. beautiful. It's yeah. so beautiful.
1: And it's so perfect for the image that we're seeing and for evoking that emotional response in me that it's just a, like, uh, uh, it completely like sucks me in. Um, and then and then it's like, poof, it's gone. And, and we're back to the mystery. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely the thing that I connect with and that I hold in my own memory of this film. It's the image that I associate with shutter island the most is leo with his arms around michelle williams as she completely fades to ash
2: the first thing i think of absolutely i'm with you
0: it's a great visual and it is memorable it's not my connecting point but it's really good for me i've hinted at it already i think it's dr collie just in general as a character and more than anything there is one conversation and i'll probably blend a couple of other lines from other conversations but It's the way in which he justifies his methodology. It's a it's the initial conversation that he's having with with Chuck and with Teddy. And later on the film, he talks. I think it's actually it's early on the film just before the conversation starts. He says he talks about insanity and he says sanity is not a choice, Marshall. You can't just choose to get over it. Very true. And he, he says, I built something valuable here. And valuable things have a way of being misunderstood in their own time. Everyone wants a quick fix. I'm trying to do something that people, yourself included, don't understand. Little hint at what we don't know yet. And I'm not going to give up without a fight. And in that first conversation, I think it's Teddy's looking at what I would like to believe are real depictions of therapy prior to this, like old school therapy of People having, like, bags over their heads, and it's just this creepy kind of torture almost. And Kali says, used to be the kind of patients we dealt with here were shackled and left in their own filth. They were beaten as if whipping them bloody would drive their psychosis out. We drove screws into their brains. We submerged them in icy water until they lost consciousness or even drowned. And Chuck goes, and now? And then Kali says, we treat them. And very quickly he doesn't hesitate, he just goes right into it. We treat them, try to heal, try to cure. And this is the big point that I, I really what made this my connecting point. And if that fails, at least we try to provide them with a measure of comfort in their lives, a measure of calm. And of course Teddy says, I don't think these inmates need to be given that sense of calm, you know, and, and he goes on to talk about, you know, the prisoner versus versus patient. Right.
2: whether they're violent or not.
0: Right. And he even he even kind of reinforces that by saying it's my job to treat my patients, not their victims. I mean, Kali just constantly goes to bat for those 67 people that are in his facility. And that to me is what convinced me that he's not in it for prestige. He's not in it for money. He's not in it for any kind of fame or using these folks as experiments. He really is trying to find the best best methods by which to actually treat these people. And in the end, I think lobotomy, as much as he doesn't like it, is that last-ditch effort to provide those patients with comfort in their lives a measure of calm. As crazy as she looked, shh, lady, was just that. Now, did she look happy? No, not to us, but maybe in her head she was. I mean, she's gardening. I guess that makes her happy. But I think for Kali, for I don't think he looks at lobotomy as a non-starter. I think he looks at it as a last resort that still fits into that methodology and that end result of wanting to treat patients. Because he could go back to that putting screws in their heads and drowning them. That was getting rid of the problem. That wasn't treating the problem. That was making the patient the problem instead of the illness that they were fighting. And so at the end, when we see Teddy make that decision, I think Kali and Chuck, the facial expressions that they show us are a sense of, we did the best we could. We didn't compromise who we were. And at the end of the day, he's making this decision. We're not making it for him. And so I think they take some kind of comfort in that. And not, not having this conversation before that, I think it wouldn't have made that moment as impactful. Because if you think about even, you know, Chuck, he he's role playing, too, in this case, like he's actually allowing Kali to preach to Teddy by provoking him. And now what do you do now? And that's you know, that's I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do, but yeah, whatever. But I look at this conversation and I think that it it serves to really encapsulate maybe what in the movie what Kali's trying to do for his patients, but I also think it serves to represent a bigger picture of the fact that at the end of all this, people are that they're people. They're not inmates. They're not violent criminals. Yes. That's part of who they are. And is punishment justified? Probably. But so is treatment. So that was mine.
2: (laughs) It's a good Good stuff, man. Absolutely. Good stuff. And, And you know what, you know what I love about it? it's not so, it's not as obvious as our picks. <laughs> I mean, like you know, our picks, our picks are a bit, you know, like they're they're flashy, right? I mean, like, but they're still good picks. But yours is yours drills down into the whole methodology and into what the actual plot and uh, the- theories of the of the film are, is about and why I think Scorsese chose to adapt this.
0: Yeah, I mean, connecting points I think really do speak to. Even if we have the same ones, I think connecting points allow us to be able to say, this is how it hit home for me. And, you know, in two years, I might be in a different place and another moment's going to hit me. That's what's great about these. I've watched, I've gone back and watched movies that we've covered and have looked back and said, what's my connecting? Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't my connecting point this summer. You know why? Because that's how, that's why movies are that beautiful is they can evoke such a different kind of flavor, different kind of feeling depending on where you are in life what circumstance you're watching the movie in. 100%. Yeah.
2: yeah m- movies movies don't change. We do, right? Exactly. What? A,
0: yeah, that, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of Feelin' Film. Zohab, man, it was great having you on the show. And uh, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about the podcast that you co-host and where people can find you to know more about that or even have conversations about this or other movies that you're into.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. just want to say thank you so much for having me this was an absolute honor um and you know i I could have i could have got up here and talked about the worst movie on the planet and i would have had a great time um but i i was so lucky to find something as good as shutter island to be able to speak to you guys about this was really i had a blast um and i will never see i'll never watch shutter island the same way again and i never do honestly i never watched that movie and uh come away with the same experience as i did the last time i saw it so that is what that is a movie that always seems to evolve for me every time i see it but um look uh midnight double feature is a podcast that i started with my co-host colin um quite a while ago two and a half years ago Uh, basically colin and i um every other week we choose a movie we cover it sequentially we break it down talk about it not particularly scene by scene but you know take the talking points you know, we make jokes. We we try and be a bit more entertaining than critical, but you know, we we do end up being critical from time to time. Um, and on the other weeks, so the weeks that we don't have those episodes, I am hosting a episode with my uh, my good friend uh, Matt, and basically that's kind of like a uh, we call it upcoming attractions. Basically, we review um, movies that are currently out in the cinemas or what's streaming um and just talk about the new trailers um you know we're about to gear up to talk about dc fandom because that was a huge event um but yeah basically you know that's how that's midnight dollar feature we recently just made a, a slew of announcements basically we uh uh launched a spin off podcast um we we're, we're colin and i are taking a tackling breaking bad episode by episode so um, you know, Breaking Bad is one of my favorite shows of all time, and I just think that it should be talked about, and I just can't find a good podcast that, you know, breaks it down episode by episode, or not something to my taste at least, but uh, Colin's never seen it. I've seen it three times through, so we try and make it accessible for uh, veterans of Breaking Bad and newcomers to Breaking Bad, so if you're watching it week by week, you can join us. That's called Bad Crystal, the Breaking Bad podcast. Uh, We just kicked off our Patreon, all right, Uh, which was a a big step for us. You know, we, it's tough to really monetize the podcast, but, you you know, because you're not, you're never really like confident whether you're going to be able to, but we've, we've had a great response. You know, we've, we've, in the past two and a half years, we've built a a great audience, a great fan base, really passionate fans. Um, So we're wholly grateful to everyone who supports us. Um, But, you know, if you do want to get, have a look to see what we're doing in our bonus feed. It's uh patreon.com forward slash midnight double feature. Uh, and pretty much any anything else that you want midnight double feature related, uh, you can just head to our website, midnight double feature.com. Uh, we also have merch there as well, but um, that's, that's midnight double feature. It's uh, honestly, ever since I started it, it's changed my life. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I do law as a, as my day job. So law is very heavy. It's very intense. And just to be able to, you know, take a a night every week and just talk about movies, um, it really, really resets my brain. If we are using the theme of Shutter Island, <laughs> <laughs> nice,
1: that's awesome, man. Yeah, I definitely recommend folks, listeners, check out Midnight Double Feature uh, and see what Zoheb's got going on. It's great, great stuff, and it's very similar, you know, what you're talking about. Just the way that we came into existence and the same kind of the chemistry you know, that we have like that's that's what we try to exist for as well for our listeners. It's uh it's not trying to be the most critical podcast out there and get it right about all of our reviews. It's just hey this is how we felt about it. And absolutely, you know, and you guys are having more fun with it. And that's awesome. And it's a great style. Uh, we've got a couple quick announcements before we end, guys. I want to put out there we have another contest going on. So new film is coming out, came out, I guess, already a couple days ago. It's called The Vanished. And it's available on Video On Demand. It stars Anne Hesch and Thomas Jane. It's a gripping psychological thriller. It's directed by Peter Fassanelli. And it's about a family vacation that takes a terrifying turn when two parents discover that their young daughter has vanished without a trace. And stopping at nothing to find her, the search for the truth leads to a shocking revelation where nothing is what it seems. It's a very intense thriller. You can own it or rent it right now on Video On Demand on digital Uh, so yeah, rated R from Paramount, you can watch it tonight. It's called The Vanished. I said it wrong on our last podcast. I called it something else. It's The Vanished. Let me correct myself. (laughs) We also are giving away five digital codes of this film. we already made this post on Twitter, but it's still there. You can go find it. And all you've got to do is locate Twitter at FeelinFilm. You can retweet this giveaway tweet for a chance to win one of these five codes. And that's all you got to do. It's pretty simple. Coming up the rest of this week, we will be having, at some point uh, soon, an FF Plus where Kales and I are going to get together to do our spoiler-free reviews of upcoming Netflix films, Enola Holmes, and a documentary, The Social Dilemma, which is going to be like the documentary version of The Social Network. I'm really excited to find out more about this. I've heard about it, and it, it looks to be pretty all-encompassing about where social media is today. And I don't know, it might be scary to go through this one. We're going to find out. And then Patrick and I, on the heels of DC fandom, Hub, as you were just talking about, we have really just had our DC fandom reunited uh, in a lot of ways. We've never lost it. We've both been big DC guys forever.
2: And we're going to do a, a say, little... Say, yeah, you, like, you know what I what
1: mean? Like a you know? It is. It, it did. It was a phenomenal event. And it just, they knocked it out of the park. And they've got so much good stuff coming. Patrick's a Superman guy. I'm a Batman guy. And this podcast started because of Batman v Superman. So we're going to have a fun little theme. And we're going to do two months of Batman v Superman. We're going to cover Batman movies that we haven't talked about yet. We're going to do Batman Begins oh, and The Dark beautiful. Knight Rises. Uh, we've already done The Dark Knight back in our Nolan month. But we're going to do those two. We're going to do Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Then we're going to do our Superman. Well, actually, in the middle. I'm sorry. For the V... We're going to do the Dark Knight Returns, which is basically uh, also includes the original Batman versus Superman fight. Then we're going to have our Superman section where we're going to do Superman 1 and 2, the old school ones, and Man of Steel, which we hadn't got a chance to talk about. And then we're going to wrap it up with a couple of extra fun conversations. We're going to do, what was it, Silly Superman, I believe, Patrick is what we called it? Yeah, the the Campy Crusader. Yeah, we're going to do Silly Superman first, which is uh, Superman 3, and then we're going to do <laughs> Campy Crusader, which is Batman and Robin. So, a whole bunch of Batman and Superman stuff coming your way. We are still going to be covering some theater picks. Well, whatever. When, when I get to go to the theater again here in Seattle, we're going to cover some theater movies and or some VOD stuff. But uh, we will sprinkle those in as extra main episodes as they come. But this is going to be the main lineup for our normal show week so we're pretty pumped about that we're gonna have a lot of fun so if you want to hear us have a lot of fun you should tune into those episodes
0: and that'll do it from us so uh, guys thanks for another great conversation and we'll talk soon
1: hey everyone thanks again for listening if you enjoy the show we'd love to hear from you you can leave us a review on itunes or wherever you're listening these help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you